Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times with a special edition of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right. Getting over is back for a special Wednesday show as we break down everything that happened Tuesday night on NXT Gold Rush, the first night of the two-week event. We are also on today's show welcoming WWE ring announcer Samantha Irvin for a long-awaited conversation that you absolutely do not want to miss. As we kick off today's show, let's get through the reminders right off the top first that this podcast is all about defy. So please, folks. Stop being marks for yourselves and go back to being a mark for me. Go back to being marks for the Getting Over Wrestling podcast, the Silver King Adam Silverstein Vintage. Chris Vanini, head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave us five-star ratings on Apple. You can also leave a written review on Spotify. You can make comments under our individual episodes. We love when you guys interact with us. Tell us how much you love the show, hopefully, and give us those five-star reviews. They are important. They bump us up in Apple, Spotify, all the other ranking systems, and they just mean a lot to us. So please do not forget that we are all about the five. Also, please remember to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news analysis highlights, all that great stuff. Also, on pay-per-view weeks, you get to vote in pre- and post-show polls and join us for live shows on Twitter Spaces. All of it, once again, at Getting Overcast. Last, but certainly not least, a reminder. I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do too, because for only $5 a month, you can become an official Getting Overhead. Join us over at buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. You get bonus audio, you get news posts, but more important than both of those, you get to support the Silver King and Vintage and the podcast that hopefully you love so much. All right, with all that out of the way, like I said, we have a jam-packed special show for you. Very excited to talk about this two-night NXT Gold Rush, of course, starting with everything that happened this Tuesday. And then in the second portion of today's show, we will have our exclusive one-on-one sit-down interview with WWE ring announcer Samantha Irvin. If you are joining us for the first time and you just want to hear Samantha speak, no problem. We have timestamps in our episode description, so you can go ahead, jump to that interview. But I do hope you listen to the breakdown of NXT. And if you are joining us and you're primarily a WWE main roster fan, well, of course, we cover that as well. Our Tuesday episode, the show right before this one, we break down everything that happened across SmackDown and Raw this week. So again, Samantha Irvin at the end of the show. First, we are going to start by breaking down NXT Gold Rush. And I got to tell you, this was an extremely successful special television event for NXT, centered on, of course, world heavyweight champion Seth Rollins going down to NXT for the first time in a long time and defending that title against Braun Breaker. So let's go ahead, break down everything that happened Tuesday night, and then, of course, we will get to the interview with Samantha Irvin. So Seth Rollins and his trainee, Nathan Frazier, they were like commiserating in the locker room, congratulating one another on their recently won gold. For Frazier, of course, it's the Heritage Cup. Uh, Rollins said he was proud of Frazier. Then Carmelo Hayes and Trick Williams introduced themselves to Rollins, and Rollins was kind of feigning like he was ignoring them before laughing with them, saying, of course, he knows who they are. Melo said they were paying respects. Seth said that he better not look at his title, which he caught him doing. Rollins even dropped Melo's line, you know I don't miss, and they dapped each other up. I just thought it was cool as hell for Melo to get that rub. I'd have liked to have heard from Trick 
as well, just to see if he could pop Rollins in the moment. But it was a fun backstage segment setting the stage for the two main events and getting Rollins and Frazier on screen at the same time. Obviously, it was cool because Rollins trained Frazier at the Black and Brave Academy in Iowa before he became Nathan Frazier. Back then, he was, of course, his real name, Ben Carter. So let's get to the World Heavyweight Championship match. Obviously, the main event of the show, Seth Rollins defending against Braun Breaker. Breaker's nameplate was finally flipped from the 80s colors to the black and red. So the heel entrance and presentation for him was finally perfect. You guys know I've been bothered by that for so long to this point. Rollins got a huge ovation and had his ribs heavily taped from Finn Balor's attack on Raw. And the spotlight was back too, so it does look like that's going to be permanent. Midway through, Rollins hit a trio of tope suicidas and a massive frog splash off the top rope through Breaker on the announce table. We also found out that Vic Joseph apparently keeps a bowl of candy under the announce table awning. I guess he munches on it during commercial break. I don't really know. Uh, Breaker avoided a second frog splash inside. He put Rollins in the Steiner recliner. Then he had a Frankensteiner and his press power slam, sometimes finisher for a false finish. Rollins blocked a spear with a knee and hit a pedigree for another false finish. Braun countered the stomp with a short range spear for a third false finish. And Rollins finally caught Breaker flying with a super kick, hitting two stomps to retain in 17 minutes. As Rollins celebrated, and as I expected, I talked about this Tuesday on our WWE show, Balor viciously attacked him after the bell. Security tried stopping him, but he beat them too. Balor then slammed a chair into Rollins' back, and he was going to hit coup de gras when Mello and Trick first made the save, and then they held Rollins back from going after Balor. So yes, off the top, this match was indeed a banger. And Rollins did way more than I expected with that frog splash into the announce table. But at the same time, I just know these guys could do better. Like if Rollins was allowed to go all out, if he wanted to go all out, which he clearly did not hear. And again, it's strange to say that because the guy jumped off the top rope and did a frog splash through the announce table. But that's a relatively safe move, I guess you could say, to be as spectacular as it looks. He was clearly protecting himself as champion, which he should be doing because, look, coming down to NXT and having a match with Braun Breaker, as great as it is for us, he has much more important things on his plate, such as Money in the Bank coming up against Finn Balor. So I'm going to go four stars and an A- minus because the false finishes didn't actually create drama as we knew there was no way he was dropping this title. Now, the Balor attack was a great closing moment, and it paid off viewers who may have been checking out NXT for the first time, or at least the first time in a long time. Balor is right now in full-on hater mode. Like, think about the kayfabe. The guy flew from Cleveland to Orlando just to beat Seth's ass because he called him a bitch the night before. What's great is that Rollins asked for this from Balor, and it's exactly what he's getting, the old Finn. He feels completely revitalized, and it's really cool as well that the two longest-reigning and most notable NXT champions, I think just by at least days holding the title, uh, in the history of the brand, they both closed the show. I thought that was a nice touch. Extremely curious to see what this does from a ratings perspective and whether folks just tuned in for the main event, watched the whole show, or perhaps didn't care at all. All in all, it was a successful effort by WWE, I think, to get eyes on NXT. There's numerous people I know who watched this that don't watch NXT on a week-to-week basis. It's also going to be interesting to see whether viewership carries at all next week without Rollins. Yes, Baron Corbin's going to be on the episode. There are other familiar faces that will be on NXT next week for the main roster audience. 
but it's not going to be Rollins. And it'll be curious to see if they carry any audience, none, or if it doesn't affect it at all. Uh, we had a face-to-face with Mello and Baron Corbin. Both were dressed really nice. Corbin said Mello had swagger, but there's nothing he can say or do that Corbin hasn't experienced before. He said Corbin has never experienced an NXT title reign, nor respect from the fans, and he won't let him rehab his career against him. Mello brought up Happy Corbin, which Baron turned around immediately, saying that gimmick got him a $1.8 million house. Mello can't level up to him. Mello said at 26, he cashed in a contract and won a title while Corbin was getting cut by the Arizona Cardinals. Uh, Mello put over the black and gold OGs, including Corbin. Uh, He said they set the bar, but he's not there to reach the bar they set. He's there to exceed that bar. He said he owns the D to NXT. He's built a new roof on it because he's blown it off so many times. Corbin said Hayes needing to convince himself that he's him every week makes him a nobody and insignificant. Then he stopped Mello in his tracks and boasted some more about his lifestyle, dropping the mic and walking off. When I tell you I was floored by the quality of this segment, that may be an understatement. Like this might have been the best promo of Corbin's career. And if not, it may at least have been his best promo in the last few years. He came across so confident and so cocky and so believable in his character. The only negative is he drops the mic after a really hot promo segment and they play the ridiculous fake Elvis Las Vegas music, casino type of music. And it's just like, How do you not prepare for when you're changing someone's character to give them new music that matches it? Let's go back to what we've been talking about for weeks with Braun Breaker. They made him a heel. Okay. For like a month, he was still coming out in the 80s colors with the the singlet and some of that. They finally changed the gear. They kept the Titantron. They finally changed the Titantron. They kept the nameplate. Now, finally, he has all of it together as black, red, and white. So with Corbin, you've changed the look a little bit. He's talking more confidently. He's speaking, I should say, more confidently. And he's more believable. And you're trying to rehab this guy. And yet, the punctuation, you know, when someone drops a mic and walks off and the music plays, that's supposed to be a moment, you know? Instead, it's the corny, happy Corbin-esque Las Vegas Elvis shit. And it's like, you gotta be prepared for that. You gotta be ready to go with a new theme or an old theme or no theme at all. Have him drop it and it be silent. And he walks out and Mello's there and he's speechless. You got to be smarter about the punctuation on a segment like that. Um, But look, Mello was extremely strong here. So we've seen him do well on the mic previously. If Corbin can be this guy going forward, he's not only going to be a huge benefit to NXT, he can possibly revitalize himself and make his way back to the main roster as well. As you can tell, I was very excited about what we got here from Baron Corbin. I'm happy. I'm pumped is what I am. Uh, North American Championship, Wesley against Tyler Bate with Mustafa Ali as the special guest referee. This opened the show. Now, Ali did this very interestingly. He did two fast counts for Bate, a slow count for Lee, and then a slow count for Bate all in the opening minutes of the match. The competitors were like flabbergasted by it, but Ali had a shit-eating grin across his face. Eventually, he called it clean. Bate avoided cardiac kick, countering with the rebound lariat. Both knocked each other off the top rope. Ali got to a six count, stopped, lifted Wes up outside and smacked him across the face, trying to revive him to get him to come back in the ring and not lose via countout. He did the same for Bate inside, but as he blocked his view, Lee caught Bate with the cardiac kick, 
for the retention in 13 minutes. After the bell, Ali raised both their arms and put them over. He was clapping to the crowd, and Lee and Bate just looked at each other like, what is this shit that's going on right now? Now, this was such a unique and kind of refreshing use of a special guest referee gimmick. Like, it's clear Ali was having fun with the guys earlier because he called it down the line for the entire second half of the match. But Bates' loss got completely excused, and NXT now has a really good reason to run this back, probably as a triple threat, which should be even better than the one-on-one match. Now, despite being super entertaining, Ali's theatrics interrupted the match flow so consistently, I can't really go higher than 3.5 stars and a B, but there's no doubt that the work was strong, both in the ring and from a storyline perspective. Eddie Thorpe was running the ones and twos for nobody backstage when Damon Kemp came up with his match stipulation. He figured it out. He wanted to have a raw underground match on NXT, a 20 by 20 ring with no ropes and a winner decided only by pinfall, knockout or submission. Later, Thorpe was watching raw underground tape when Gable Stevenson made his debut backstage in NXT, offering to be his training partner for the match. He made a quip about knowing Kemp well. Well, he knows him well because it's literally his brother in real life. Damon Kemp is Bobby Stevenson. So it makes Gable helping Eddie prepare for Bobby extremely strange. It's probably purposeful, but we'll have to find out the way this goes next week and then the week after. I thought it was pretty stupid for Thorpe to randomly have an entire DJ setup like that, like backstage at NXT with no one listening to it but him but I'd be lying if I said I wasn't intrigued by doing Raw Underground on NXT. I do hope it has a similar aesthetic because let's just remember, they had the folks around the ring and sure, they had the women dancers and that was a little misogynistic and unnecessary when they initially did it. But the people around the ring, the grittiness of it, the smoke, everything being black, it just worked for me from an aesthetic standpoint. I said it then and I still believe it now. Raw Underground could have worked to a degree, just not exactly as WWE managed it at the time. It was a paradigm of somewhat in creative coming up with a really good idea and Vince McMahon presenting it in a way that was just unappealing to the audience. Like so much could have been done with it. Plus, NXT always seems to hit when it takes something like that and repurposes it. So I'm really excited to see their take on it And I'm definitely curious to see what Stevenson does in NXT and how long he does it. Let's not forget, the guy was drafted to Raw in 2021 and literally never showed up. So Gable, I think he just finished an amateur uh, wrestling tournament and he's apparently considering the Paris Olympics in 2024. So I don't know if he's gonna do that. If so, if he's gonna start as a pro wrestler, like actually appearing on TV while that's happening, then take a break. I don't know what they're doing with him. It was interesting to see him show up on TV, though. Uh, Briggs and Jensen fought Hank Walker and Tank Ledger and Malik Blade and Idris Anofe in a number one contendership match. Hank and Tank debuted matching gear. There was no tagging in the early part of the match. They eventually got to it. Anofe jumped off Briggs' back while he was standing for a huge dropkick on Hank. Briggs then booted Hank with Anofe under his arm for a simultaneous DDT. Briggs and Jensen hit Tank with a cradle lariat, but Anofe broke the fall with an elbow drop and Blade... Moments later, jumped from the other corner with a frog splash to get the win. Now, Briggs and Jensen felt like the obvious winners because of their experience, but Blade and Anofe were the right winners, a team growing in experience. They have oodles of talent, but they've rarely been given the spotlight to show it. Gallus is going to retain no matter what, don't get me wrong, 
but it's going to be nice to see fresh blood in the title match, and hopefully it gets them over as well. Now, the Chase U pep rally began with an introduction from Duke Hudson before Thea Hale came out with an entire cheer squad cutting a really passionate promo about skipping high school, never wanting to go to college because all she's wanted to do is be a WWE superstar. Drew Gulak and Charlie Dempsey were annoyed to be wasting time with a non-college graduate, but she thanked them anyway for their lessons. Then they introduced a new hail yeah catchphrase, which that kind of works. I'll give him credit for that. Uh, Tiffany Stratton interrupted talking shit. So Duke put Thea over. Tiffy talked more shit. So then Thea jumped on her and forced her to tap out in the Kimura lock. And then she ran around the ring celebrating with the title. And this was, you know, so corny, but also so good. Like there was an emphasis on Hale possibly becoming the youngest ever NXT champion at age 19. And that is now the hook for this match. Thea's promo before she went all Tasmanian devil was actually solid and everyone played their roles pretty well. It was more entertaining than I expected. And it also did a great job building for next week. Actually, you know, I said Tasmanian devil. I'm remembering. I came across someone online. I think it was on Twitter, wherever that actually compared her to a Yorkshire Terrier. And I think that is a much better like personification of Thea Hale. She's just nipping at your heels and constant energy, not going to stop, yells, you know, barks in, in the equivalent um, and just boundless energy. And I think that is the perfect call for her. She's the personification of a Yorkshire Terrier as a human being. It's quite something. I do believe she has a high ceiling and I am really curious to see what we get out of her next week against Stratton. Uh, Ulisa Leone and Valentina Ferois fought Lash Legend and Jakara Jackson. Fraser and Dragon Lee put over the faces before the match. Fraser related what Rollins said about taking care of those who help you succeed. So he decided to give Dragon his first Heritage Cup shot in a big, you know, bro on bro type of moment. Uh, fun little backstage segment, I thought. Uh, the Metaphor men were ringside and Electro Lopez and Lola Vice visited as well. Ferois had an awesome flying hurricanrana when to get distracted outside, eating a boot for legend, and the heels got the win. Fun short match, got the women over. I do wonder how many weeks in a row we're going to get the same outcast joke with Jackson. I'm sorry, Miss Jackson. Like, okay, it's now been three times. I love outcast just like you guys do. Her name's Jackson. Let's get over it and maybe do something else, okay? Uh, Dana Brooke fought Cora Jade. Dana did this really weird thing where for a large portion of the match, she posed every time she did anything decent. Uh, Brooke sold an injured knee. Then she went to do her back handspring elbow when she collapsed on landing and sold the knee. Now, it appeared fake as she was selling before collapsing, but the match not being called and trainers trying to just throw a knee brace on her, like a Stone Cold Steve Austin knee brace, during commercial, instead of stopping the match and like taking her to the back, obviously that made it blatantly fake. But the brace never went on and they brought out a stretcher and immobilized her leg and Cora just kept talking shit and posing and getting in her face all the way up the ramp. So we come back from commercial and Cora grabs Dana's head. So Brooke smacked Jade, hobbled off the stretcher and continued. Cora worked the knee and got Dana in a single leg crab. Brooke screamed and reached for the ropes, but didn't tap. So the referee eventually stopped the match to save her from pain because she was stuck in the center of the ring with nowhere to go. Then she eventually left on a stretcher. Now, this was your typical like wrestling trope, booking babyface in extreme peril, overcoming adversity against the heel. And we should give credit to Dana for the selling. And we should give credit to creative to some degree for giving the match plenty of time at 12 minutes. But man, like, 
First of all, the procedure with the trainers lacked any basis in reality. Beyond that, the wrestling was clunky. The conceptualization, it just wasn't on point. But then there's the fact that they did this for Dana Brooke, who let's be candid. And we're not hating here, okay? We're just talking about what we have seen with our own eyes over a decade now. She's been in WWE for a decade. She's not going to become any better than she has been. The Mandy Rose Reclamation Project, it was largely successful because it was character-based. They gave her something she never had on the main roster, a featured spot with group backing and extended, consistent mic time. But the reason she got that is because Mandy always flashed on the main roster and you just thought, hey, she's getting a little bit better on the mic. She's getting a little bit better in the ring, but she's not in the top tier of performers. So what are we going to do to get her where we want to get her, where we believe she can go? We're going to bring her back down to NXT and put our emphasis behind her as we relaunch this brand and see if she can do it. And she did. Credit to Mandy Rose. Dana has basically been the same person for a decade. And her best role was the third wheel in Titus Worldwide. That was five, six years ago. Now, look, Dana got a lot of hate online Tuesday after this segment. And hate is not fair. She is out there working hard and busting her ass to do well, just like you try to do at your job. No one needs to be tweeting shit at her, okay? But critically, it is fair to point out that the crowd had zero interest whatsoever in her as a baby face at peril. Zero point zero. She has not shown anything that would allow fans to cling on to her and want to see her fight adversity and come through the other side. I mean, they booed her and cheered the heel. And Dana was the one fighting through a knee injury showing guts, whereas Cora was just shit-talking her the, time, the entire time. That tells you all you need to know. There are some wrestlers, okay, who don't succeed in WWE because they lack a singular trait. Perhaps in-ring ability or mic ability or overall charisma, and WWE decides, we're just not going to get behind you, but fans still get behind those people because they are so damn good in one of those areas. Let's look at Ricochet just as an example. He is so freaking great in the ring. Even though he's rough on promos, he's a fan favorite. Is he ever going to be world heavyweight champion or WWE champion? Probably not. But can he be a featured performer for a very long time, a mid-card champion, get into some of those main events as a challenger? He absolutely can and he should. Dana has never excelled in any singular area. She's not a reclamation project like let's say Dijak or Mandy because there's not a base from which they can build upon. And that's why the segment didn't work. In order for something like this to succeed, the fans have to care about the performer going into it. If you ran a very similar storyline, let's just say with Ricochet on the main roster, he's gonna get over so freaking much because he's already over because they already care about him. Or let's say you did something like that with Chad Gable, who actually is the entire package, but WWE just hasn't used him well. Well, if you decide, hey, I want to take Chad Gable and vault him into the upper mid card, doing a storyline where he's going toe to toe with a top heel and he refuses to give up and 
He injures his knee, but he fights through it and gets through the match. He's going to get major reactions when he gets off that stretcher and and fights back and does all that stuff because people like him already because they believe in him because he has shown things that they can get behind. The unfortunate part of this is Dana just hasn't. And again, the hate is not justified whatsoever, okay? She is a worker. She is, I almost said employee, but she is a superstar in WWE and she is doing her best to entertain you. If you don't like her, that's okay. It's different than hating on someone. Again, the problem is fans have just never been given or been able to see a single reason to like and support her to an extensive degree. And because of that, running a storyline like this for a performer like her, it just was not going to work. Now, I hope that her coming back in NXT results in her finding something that they can build upon where she has a much longer career. But this, what happened on Tuesday, it just did not work. Uh, Joe Gacy last week ranted at Schism for their loss. Jagger Reed blamed him and Gacy accepted that. But Ava reminded that their four roots, one tree. Diamond Mine watched the video calling Schism a cancer that they want to eradicate. Then they all poked each other, made fun of each other for their looks, just like siblings would. Uh, the schism part was odd. It was actually rather unclear. Diamond Mine is a trio. They work so well. I just hope whenever they get called up, they all go together. Like the Creed brothers, yeah, they're a team, but Ivy Nile is just as much a part of what makes them work as the brothers themselves are. Gigi Dolan got a vignette talking about art serving as an escape from her tough reality. She said all the rejection in her life makes her unique. And now she's all about creativity. Kiana James backstage made fun of Gigi saying that she was also troubled as a youth, but she grew up, found ambition and became a success while Dolan remained just mediocre. It was actually one of Kiana's best promos. The vignette, it was fine. I wouldn't say it was much to write home about. Von Wagner sat with Mr. Stone in an empty performance center, finally deciding to open up about the picture. Wagner explained that he has a disease or had a disease, I'm sorry, that didn't allow his skull or brain to grow as a kid. So that necessitated him undergoing a 14-hour surgery as a 15-month-old baby. NXT showed a ton more pictures of this, and he explained that the doctors basically gave him a life. Wagner said kids and other parents used to make fun of his appearance and stare at him, calling him a monster when he was growing up. And then Stone understood the anger issues, but he wanted Wagner to open up even further and tell the rest of his story. He said he wasn't ready to do it, and he would save it for another day. Now, this was meant to be a heavy, emotional segment. And to some degree, it was. Look, it's hard to criticize something that is reality for this guy, right? You couldn't help but feel for him and the ridicule that he obviously went through as a kid. And kudos to him, by the way, for having the security and maturity as an individual to be okay sharing this with a national audience. There's no taking away from any of that. From a creative standpoint, I kind of felt the presentation of it was contrived. Like, hey, viewer, we want your sympathy for this character, as opposed to it being more natural. I mean, they have been talking about this for months, and I assume most of us watching knew it would be something like this. I just feel like it could have been handled with a lighter touch in a more realistic manner. And lastly, a bunch of other things happened. Uh, NXT Anonymous found Lyra Valkyria confronting JC Jane backstage. JC didn't stand up to her own trash talk and scoffed when Lyra left. Gallus was heading for the pub when Umberto Creo and Angel Garza walked up talking shit, but Gallus kind of blew them off. Then in the NXT parking lot, the champions drove off only for Stax to attack Joe Coffey and toss him into his trunk. 
right as Thorpe accepted the challenge that we mentioned earlier. Roxanne Perez stormed past them and attacked Blair Devonport for revenge. Uh, Creo and Garza, they should really be the next tag team champions. Like ideally they should win the titles at Great American Bash. It sure seems like it's gonna be D'Angelo family as the ones to beat Gallus based on that angle. But I would definitely call an audible and give it to Creo and Garza. They should be running the NXT tag team division. I also loved that like Roxanne Perez was just you know casually walking backstage and then 30 seconds later, you see Blair Davenport straight up laid out and Perez angry. Like she's having a good day. She sees the woman she hates, just beats the ever loving shit out of her. So I thought that was very funny and it showed an edge for Roxanne that we've been waiting to see because right now, look, she's been a goody two shoes baby face her entire run to this point. So folks, that was our complete recap of NXT Gold Rush. And like I said earlier, if you're a first time listener, we do this weekly for WWE on Tuesdays with our NXT AEW show normally on Thursdays, but we wanted to make a special exception this week because it was an absolute blast having an extended, exclusive sit-down conversation with popular WWE ring announcer, Samantha Urban. We actually spoke with Samantha before she sang the national anthem at Fenway Park last weekend, but I wanted to make sure the interview got the space it deserved, so we saved it for this week. We cover topics ranging from her career as a singer to trying out actually as a wrestler for WWE, to her process conceptualizing all the unique ring announcements that we have come to know and love. One note before we get to the interview. As a podcast host and producer, there is a cardinal rule about always checking your microphone input before you begin a show or an interview. I broke that rule because we had a change in process that I had not anticipated right before we spoke. So unfortunately, you're gonna be hearing me through a laptop microphone rather than this high quality setup that we have here. Really, I'm the least important part of the interview anyway, so it shouldn't matter. But if you do notice a change in audio, that is the reason why. A demerit for your boy, the Silver King. Anyway, enough criticizing myself. You're not here for that either. Let's get to it. And we will be back on the other side with some takeaways following the latest in-depth conversation right here on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Thrilled to welcome WWE ring announcer Samantha Irvin to the show for the first time. You can catch her as one of the newest members of the Red Brand every Monday night on Raw, 8 p.m. Eastern on USA Network, as well as at WWE Money in the Bank on Saturday, July 1st, airing live on Peacock. Samantha, really appreciate you taking time out of your busy day, your busy week to sit down with us. This is a conversation we've wanted to bring to our listeners for a long time, so we appreciate you taking your time to do it. Oh my goodness. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I'm so excited. Absolutely. Now, I mentioned where fans can find you on WWE TV, but this Sunday night, you're going to be back home in Massachusetts at Fenway Park singing the national anthem before the Red Sox Yankees game. Now, personally, I'm a Yankees fan, but I'm sure for you, it's a pretty big deal to be singing at Fenway. I know you've done the anthem at MLB games before. Is this your first time at Fenway Park? And what does this opportunity mean for you? Oh, well, this is actually my third time doing the national anthem for a Red Sox game at Fenway. The second time I did it was with my sisters. We sang in a trio. So that was awesome. But um, this time it definitely has a little bit of a different feel because I do have the WWE universe behind me. So that just gives it a whole new meaning to me. It was a super duper honor the first time and the second time. And now this time, you know, I gotta, I gotta make the WWE universe proud. So 
Is it true what some singers say that the anthem is a particularly difficult song to sing? Is that because of the lyrics, the vocal range, or what is it exactly? You know, it's one of those things. It's definitely the range of the song. And I think the vowels of the song, it, it it's harder to sing these open vowels. And, at, you know, if you start it too high, you're in trouble. So usually I have my little pitch pipe with me because mm. it's all up here. You know, if you start it down here, you don't quite get the urgency needed. If you start it too high, it's just unbearable. So it's a risk. Gotcha. That makes me curious. And I know it's tough to narrow it down when I ask a question like this, but do you have a favorite song to sing and or a most difficult song that you sing that you believe you do really well? Oh, my favorite song to sing. I don't know why, but immediately I think of In the Still of the Night. And I don't mm. even think I've ever performed that for an audience, <laughs> but just immediately like in the st I sing it around the house all the time. I love that song. Um, I've done some really challenging tunes in my career. I was in Hairspray. I was the top note dynamite in Hairspray, um, which is a short bar, but it's like you're coming out wailing. And if you don't nail it, it's clear that you didn't yeah. do it. So uh, Hairspray was difficult. I've covered a lot of Mariah Carey and Whitney Houston, which is obviously difficult mm -hmm. and people love those songs. So if you don't live up to it now you've offended people that have these memories tied to these songs uh but i love a vocal challenge so i i will choose difficult songs on purpose to try to accomplish it if i'm allowed to have preferences of songs that you sing i actually like when you sing parts that are traditionally men's parts like somebody to love for example you did that on instagram oh, i thought that was fantastic and you have a number of those clips on instagram is that really just you kind of at home in your studio just you know, having fun and just kind of getting it out a little bit because maybe you're not performing in that way consistently? Yeah, um, I just got my setup back going. So I do want to do some more covers. Um, those were kind of old. Those were oh, prior okay. to WWE. I reposted those. Those were during the pandemic. So yes, mm -hmm. I was very antsy. I went from performing every single night in Vegas. I was doing multiple productions and all kinds of gigs and then nothing. So that was a way to get some of that creativity out. Just get yourself on tape and somebody to love. I'm, thank you for saying that because I really, I needed to sing a song for something. I said, let me just try this. You know, I, I, I messed around on the flute real quick to figure out what key I was in. And then I was like, well, let me just do it. And that was the first and only take I did. Oh, cool. So I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that just happened. So, so did, I'm very proud of that one. Did your neighbors hit you or love you from singing? I was in my closet. Oh, okay. So they couldn't. I was in my closet, okay. quiet neighborhood. Um, <laughs> occasionally, like I'll, I would go outside, and a neighbor would be like, "You have a great voice," and I'm like, "Oh my goodness!" <laughs> it doesn't always sound good, you know. Right. You got to sound bad before you sound good. So, mm. but they said it was good. So sorry. Good. Yeah, and you have a lot of people telling you that's good on Instagram too. So that's really good positive. It's Thank it's you. it's pretty well known by now, at least, that you starred on America's Got Talent in 2015. And you got all the way to the semifinals, which had to be a crazy time for you. And you had a lot of great performances while you were kind of going through it. That audition, when you sang Natural Woman, and then the semifinal performance, the California Dreamin', those were special moments. At least for me as a viewer, they came across that way. What stands out to you from that entire experience with AG Day? First of all, thank you. That's very nice of you. Okay. Um, I California Dreamin' for me was the moment 
I mean, that was that was the live shows. So the live voting was open. We were at Radio City Music Hall. Um, I specifically asked that we do that song like kind of up there. Mm -hmm. I wanted to really scream it out. I really did. So I was very, 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 very nervous. It meant so much to me to kind of come up with that vocal arrangement on my own and and do it. And um, I remember Howard Stern specifically being like, that was awesome. And that meant so much to me. So, but I, I loved the entire process. I really did. And I, I enjoyed every performance and yeah, but California Dreaming was special. These days, especially on that show, and maybe you can't speak to it as much because you were, you know, eight years ago or whatever the case might have been. But it seems like some of the performances, the, the producers there are really hands on in determining what the singers and what the, all the acts really are doing. Did you kind of have to fight through that yourself where you had to make sure that your vision was the one that kind of got through or back then, eight years ago, was it more up to you than perhaps it is now for those performers? Um, you know what? I tell people all the time, I'm so happy that I got through it like unscathed because mm -hmm. so much of it is out of your control um, from the story that they choose to focus on to, you know, the, the song choices and and things like that. It's very hard to be yourself and to show what you you know, you can have an idea of how you want to be portrayed at that time. I was already touring. I was already singing all over the world. I really wanted to play my flute. I had a lot of stuff that I wanted to show. Of course, no offense to the weekend, but why would I sing Earned It by the weekend? If I'm fighting for that spot, you know I'm singing some Celine Dion. I'm singing something, right. you know? So that walking away from it and not being able to like explain that, you know, I, I guys, I wish I could have, regardless, I walked away unscathed. I, it was more than unscathed. I, I gained fans from it. I was able to connect with some incredible people that I looked up to very much. And um, I wish I could have gone harder. I wish I could have shown more, but I'm proud of it. I'm happy. And, um, you know, eight years later, I was able to show more. So it all worked out in the end. And I, and I think of that time fondly. Yeah, absolutely. Now we talk about dedication to craft and becoming an expert singer like you are is one thing, but you're also, and you mentioned it, a classically trained flautist. And I know I said that right because I practiced, which as someone, yes. who played, <laughs> which is someone, <laughs> I, I can admit this here, it, my listeners don't know this. I actually played clarinet for a grand total of three years. And I know how terrible I was at that. So to be as good as you are at flute, <laughs> which I also know is more difficult than clarinet, that had to be endless practice, desire for, for perfection. And that's just really tough to achieve. What was it that drew you to the flute and how hard was it for you to kind of choose between what avenue you primarily wanted to pursue musically? I'm like, first of all, I just have to say, I'm so happy you're asking me these. I've never answered these questions oh, ever, Cool. nor have I done a podcast interview like this. This is my first one. So this is really cool to, to like address these things. That's my awesome. mother is like, was, she passed away, but she was an incredibly gifted classical flautist she went to the Boston Conservatory um, and she got pregnant with me when she was in college so I <clears throat> I did a semester with her when I was in the womb at Boston Conservatory <laughs> but you know it's crazy because I for so long I didn't understand how good I was at the flute because it was so easy for me to learn and I don't really remember learning it, it was my mom just played all the time and I just grew up around it. When I picked it up, she showed me what, you know, the fingerings were. She showed me this, that, and the third thing. And, and we were rolling. 
And um, she was really my driving force. She wasn't a stage mom, but she was a flute mom. She was a band Mm -hmm. mom. And um, every year there was something to work towards, whether it be a talent show or districts, there was always something to compete and prepare for. And we used to joke that we were Rocky and Apollo. Sometimes we'd kind of wait to the last minute, but we would, we, you know, we'd get it going and I was placing very highly and um, I loved, loved, loved to play. It wasn't until high school when my high school was doing Wizard of Oz, the drama club. And I said, I'm, I can't, I can't, I, I have to audition for this. I have to. So I auditioned, I got the role of Dorothy and um, my focus changed. I said, I want to do this. I, I'll never abandon the flute, but I really, really, really want to act and be a character and sing. So, yeah. Yeah. Thank, thank you for asking that. Oh, of course, of course. So you're a singer and a flautist. You've done musical theater, as you mentioned. Yes. And now you're a member of WWE, which is yes. fair to say, fair to say that's not exactly the career path that most people take when it comes to professional wrestling, eventually getting there. Uh, many who wind up doing, you know, wrestling commentary, ring announcing, production, what have you, they some of them fall into the job despite never actually being a fan of it. But from what I understand, you weren't just a fan, you were what they might call a super fan of WWE. <laughs> is that the case back in the day? I, I'm I don't want them to like really know. Because I feel like they're going to be like, how did we let this girl in here? <laughs> I've been joking about it since the first time I set foot in the PC. I said, they shouldn't have let me up in here. I was just <laughs> looking around. I'm like, that's Jerry Briscoe over there. That This is crazy. It's crazy. Uh, it, it happened. The story is weird of how it happened. Um, but it was definitely meant to be. So you're the oldest of six. And... Obviously, you mentioned taking on uh, previously in other interviews, uh, taking on a more significant role, you know, helping your dad out once your mom left. And WWE, was that one of those things that either helped you through that time or maybe brought the family together? Or was it just something that you and your dad shared? It's it's a my whole family is into wrestling. We always watched premium lab events together. Um, so everybody likes it, but there's a, there's a difference when you make the choice on your own, I'm going to watch it, you know, I'm on my own time, you know, I'm going to pop it in on my own time. So my, myself, my younger brother, Irvin, my younger brother, Noah, and my dad, big Irvin, we are fans, each of us individually as a family, we are all fans. Um, but we are, uh, it's been a bonding thing for me since I was a baby. And up until, I mean, even still, we, I mean, it's crazy that this Mm -hmm. has happened. And my dad is tremendously proud and he's always texting me and always letting me know. He's always watching. He's always telling me. And he, he gave me so much perspective about wrestling growing up because you get connected to characters. And then somewhere along the way, I mean, you're going through heartbreak. My daughter went through heartbreak recently with Bianca losing the title. I got to like witness that. And I'm like, I remember being her and my dad explaining like, it's okay, you know, and Mm -hmm. you're relating to these characters. You're trying to figure out what's going on in the story. And I I got to go through all that with my dad's perspective, him being a lifelong fan. So um, yeah, it's, it's so, 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 so close and dear to my heart. And uh, even my friends, like from school and teachers have reached out to me, like, this is weird. Mm. I'm like, I told you, (laughs) I told you. 
I, I was going to ask you too where the Irvin comes from. Now I know. I don't have to ask the question. Clearly, that's that's where that is. Yeah, um, my brother Irvin, my Noah, my brother Noah. His middle name is Irvin, and my dad is Irvin Senior. So that was and an I'm easy choice. Yeah. So they were saying, come up, come up with a name. You're like, I already got it. I don't have to think. Irvin. About it. We're good. Yeah, to go. I mean, that's what it is. Yeah. Irvin. And now you're the connect too for the family. So it's one thing that hey, oh, she's in <laughs> WWE, but it's like, all right, tickets, shirts. All right, what do we need? Like, just call and now people. I'm right about every argument we ever had. Right. It's like, you know what I mean? Like, you remember that argument? We all look, look where I'm at. So even if I was wrong, I was right. Also, hey, let me tell you what really happened in case you guys didn't really understand what you saw. Yeah, you have all that, which is great. Uh, At any point when you were watching WWE during this time as a kid or even as you kind of grew up a little bit, did you ever consider it as something you might pursue in any level as a performer? Or was it one of those things for you that it's just like, I'm going to categorize this differently in my head. This is entertainment for me. It's sport. It's something that just isn't in my wheelhouse, but I love that I get to sit and enjoy it. Hmm. Um, 100%. I always knew and dreamed and spoke into existence that I would do something with WWE. When I was younger, I wrote everything down. Uh, I would keep a running log. I'd go on WWE.com and check the next day and see the blurb and I'd write down my stats. And <laughs> I've been doing that forever. Like, when, especially when I was younger, I was making scrapbooks. I dreamed of being a commentator originally. And, but I was like, well, they don't really have any girls being commentators. Let's be honest. You know, this is back in the day. And I then, of course, Lillian Garcia, because once the dream of being a singer came, I was like, well, I'm a singer. You know, I'm a singer. If wrestling is wrestling, singing is singing. And then Lillian came and she connected that. And I was like, whoa, like I remember September 11th. I remember her singing that. Mm-hmm that like it's uh, there I've done interviews before where I said I'll I'll be Lillian Garcia I'll be Lillian Garcia I never said I'd be a ring announcer but I said I would be Lillian and she inspired me so much so I I thought maybe through even after America's Got Talent I thought maybe there's some way that I can you know Logan Paul my way and that was kind of <laughs> how I thought of it you know like I'll reach a certain level in my music and and whatever and then I can collab in some way right so it's crazy that it happened this way but it's perfect it, it's really honestly such a, dr- a dream come true I feel crazy even saying it out loud I know you've gotten the chance to meet Lillian have you been able to pick her brain ask for advice has she provided any encouragement anything like that Oh, yes. I met Lillian. Um, She came to a SmackDown last year and she was just so warm. And like, so I got like the whole preacher's wife, Denzel Washington, like (laughs) when I met her and she was just like, man, you're killing it. She's like, you're doing great. Um, We talked a little bit about singing. We exchanged numbers. And she just said, like, I'm always here for you. and, And I'm proud of you. And yeah. And and I just told her, I told her what I just told you that I wanted to be her. Yeah. You know, That's cool. so yeah. So the, the story goes, as I understand it, that Mark Henry, who fans know have helped, has helped a lot of wrestlers get their start in WWE, started retweeting you during the pandemic because you were tweeting about WWE, all your thoughts. By the way, you'd fit in great on this podcast. So there's a spot here. If you ever need it, you want to be a co-host, we can, we can have you on here. But he starts retweeting you and basically just des- decides himself she needs to be part of the business. So he gets you a tryout with WWE. First of all, how crazy is it that you're on Twitter one day and you just see Mark Henry going on and on about you that comes out of nowhere. And then when you go in for the tryout, I was trying to figure this out. 
was it as a personality or was it as a wrestler? It was as a wrestler. Okay. Oh my gosh. But it wasn't though. It okay. was and it wasn't. I, You know, when he was retweeting me, I woke up. I'm like, this is crazy. I immediately called my bros and my dad and I said, this is wild. And I slid in Mark Henry's DMs and I said, yes, absolutely. Any opportunity, mm-hmm. anything, anything. I would absolutely love and be honored to work for WWE in any way. And um, he said, okay, you know, are, have you ever played a sport? You know, he kind of picked my brain. I said, nope, I'm not athletic, never played a sport. Um, but, you know, however I can get in the door, honestly, I just want to get in the door. And, and he said, you know, I could try to connect you with Michael Cole. He was like, but the best way is honestly, if you just come to a tryout and, and then just kind of see, you know, good luck, basically, is, you know, what he said. And I said, yeah. okay, great. So I, they reached out, we set it up. I, I went to the tryout. And uh, I did not get hired as a wrestler. <laughs> I was going to ask, how, how did you do? How did you do in the physical part of it? So I'm super self-deprecating, okay. honestly, when it comes to the physical stuff, because I respect it so much. So I don't want to just say, well, I'm just going to learn how to wrestle because I, I just know that that's, that ain't how it works. Not to right. be great anyway. And mm-hmm. I... um. But I still wanted to go through every single because they were breaking it down. I went to like a like one of the ones with the collegiate athletes. It was, you know, during the pandemic. So it was a small group, but they were all incredible athletes, young women, younger than me. Um, and they broke it all down. So I was like, OK, great. I'm, I'm doing it. I'm doing everything. I'm finishing it. Uh, and then obviously we had an opportunity to cut some promos. So I got to cut some promos, too. And then we ended up going to like a PC, um, some matches and they let me do a little bit of ring announcing there. So I think, uh, I think I did fine. I finished it. That's good. I finished it. I finished it. Although one girl's like shoulder or her elbow or something popped out because we were doing this thing. We were running, running, running. I remember. And I was joking to the girls. I mean, I'm, I was serious. I was like, somebody going to pull the fire alarm. Like we really going to get back in here. After the first day, I cried. I yeah. cried. I had, I cried, not just from like pain, but just because of who I met and what I did physically, what I mentally, what I was able to do. I was like, if it ends here, I'm like, I'm changed forever, you know? So yeah, it was, it was an awesome experience. So how did you get that opportunity to ring announce? I mean, I'm sure it was on your resume, of course, that you sing and you do this and do that. But while you were there, were you kind of like putting a birdie in people's ears? Like, by the way, I can do this. And I, I'd like, I'd love to try commentary. I'd love to try ring announcing. How did that actually, how did you go from trying out as a wrestler to actually getting that chance to do ring announcing? Um, I think that's kind of a theme in WWE dirt through the years. You know, obviously people who wear many hats are awesome and super respected. So I think at all these tryouts, they're keeping their eye open for potentially where people could fit. I wasn't the only one who did ring announcing. There were a couple other girls who one of them also sang and another girl who was who was interested in ring announcing. So a few of us did give it a try. Um but after the second day, I remember, after the first day, I remember telling uh, Alicia Taylor was at my tryout and I said to her, I said, I'm scared, I'm scared. And she was <laughs> like, well, you know, we know that you want to audition for this. I said, I can't have y'all going back to Mark Henry that I didn't finish this tryout, no matter what. So yeah, I think it was just keeping their eyes open for where people could potentially fit. 
has he been a constant like source of encouragement for you even after of course you got hired and even today we haven't met in person which That's is crazy. crazy yeah but um he is so encouraging once i once i found out that i was hired they wanted me to ring announce you know he was the first person i told the news to he called me right away he was like you know make sure you're listening to the greats you know you listen to howard you know listen mm-hmm. to the greats i'm like absolutely i already can hear I already can like hear them in in my mind, you know, like, and he still is, sends me messages of encouragement and he's really expressed that he's proud of me. And I hope that I've expressed how grateful I am in return. Well, you just did if you hadn't already. So hopefully you hear this. (laughs) I really, really, it's a dream. It's a dream. And it's crazy that it's Mark Henry. You dream as a singer, especially you dream. I hope that Gladys Knight discovers me and says, she's going to take me under her wing. You know, these are things you dream about, but never did I think it would be sexual chocolate. You know what I mean? (laughs) It was just crazy. I just so awesome. I've said crazy. They need to do a crazy count. That's okay. It is crazy. The story story is great. And that's why we wanted to talk to you so bad. So yeah, no, it, it makes all the sense. So it works out thankfully. And you moved to Florida and really just a few months later, I mean, you're doing 205 live. You're not there that long. You get called up to SmackDown, which was about 18 months or so ago. Clearly all of that happened incredibly fast. At what point during that process, did this go from something where you're like, I'm exploring this. I'm really excited to get this opportunity. I want to see where it goes to deciding this is how I want to make my career. Wow. Um, it, that, that happened in waves, waves of connecting this. And when I, when I started at the PC and I'm, I'm working with the other ring announcers and a lot of times people would say like, you're a singer, you know, like you're, once you find it, you're going to be, you know, and I'm like, like it took a while to connect. I, I will say this, no matter where they put me, I knew I was going to go hard. I knew that even if they were like, you're going to be Charlotte Flair's towel girl. I was about to be ironing the towels. Like I was going to (laughs) go as hard as possible. Right. So I, I cared. I still care. I I will always care tremendously, no matter what role I do and what production, whatever. Um, But it took a lot of time and I'm glad that I just got thrown in because I was able to kind of just mess up and scare the crap out of myself because I don't like to mess up. So you do something, scare the crap out of yourself and your, my wheels were just always spinning. Um, Obviously the having to announce Roman Reigns right off the bat for me, I'm like, that threw me into the deep end Mm -hmm. and working on getting his whole thing right helped me figure out what I can really contribute to this, you know, even being someone who consumes it. Cause I, I consume this, I feel the feelings of this. So finding a way to use that was um, the, the big step that I had to take when I got to the main roster and it did take some time, but, um, and I'm still working on it. It's never, ever, 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 you know, if you're a fan, you know, yeah, it's never going to end. That's true. So, you know, given you're so active on social media and everything, I'm sure you see that what you're doing on the mic is really resonating with a lot of fans the right way. And it's something that we've talked about constantly on this show, which is why, again, I wanted to have this conversation with you, but you've taken something that is often seen as like superfluous or just extra to the presentation of wrestling and added like a really unique flair to it that 
like I said, is kind of drawing its own attention. Now, there's wrestlers in the past who have gotten special treatment with their ring announces, like uh, Rated R Superstar Edge. I am not going to do the impression because I would embarrass myself. Maybe you can, but I can't. Uh, but the twist that you're adding to all of this, it's really striking that right chord with people. Was it a conscious decision to go and do that? Was it a direction from production? Did you have to get it individually approved? Like, basically, how did you go from simply ring announcing talent? And I don't mean to denigrate anyone else, but similar to how others do it, to now doing it your way with this special spin. Um, well, it's a collaborative effort. I will say that the okay. fans, I, I'm out there with them the whole show. So it, it, I think the, I always wanted to come up with something for everybody from the time I was in the PC and I started with the, the new people before they ever were on TV or anything. I got to start with some fresh people and trying to come up with things that felt like them and matched their song. And I'm such a, everything I, I'm very like, everything is just needs to be sonically right for me. That's just how I am. So, and I used to listen to theme songs and I still do as just, I'm listening to music and it just happens to be WB theme songs. Um, so all of that, the, the mood, like I'm an actress. I think when I first got there, I was learning the role that they assigned me with and I wanted to just learn it and I wanted to do it and I wanted it to be effective. And then as I got comfortable in that, I was able to really think like, well, what can I bring like that? Like, why am I here? You know, why was I Tina Turner in Las Vegas last year? And now I'm here in, in WWE with my voice and I know what I can do with my voice. And um, it started, it'll start with like one or two people. And then it just grew. Actually, the first person that I gave like a real something to, a real something was Tony D'Angelo. Mm. He was the first one that I was like, Tony D'Angelo, you know, <laughs> and I said, I can't say it any other way because that's who he is, you know, yeah. and it and, and everybody was like, you know, and, and this one I, I filled in for NXT a couple times and I everybody was kind of like responding to it. And I was like, OK, that's good. Like there's something fits. here. Yeah. Yeah. It fits, you know, and I had something for a bunch of those guys. And then when I got called up, it really was the Roman thing. He's the main guy. He's mm -hmm. the, he's the, and I am telling you dream girls moment. Right. So everything else just kind of fell in line when we were in Germany. Actually, if you go back, I don't even want to draw attention to this. Not, do it. Uh, no, you have to do it. You already mentioned it. Go for it. So when Gunther first got here, Gunther, mm -hmm. when he first, you know, came and, I, I think I said Gunther, you know, here's your winner, Gunther, you know, I obviously didn't say it like that, but right? I, you know, Gunther or whatever. And we ended up going overseas and we were in Europe and the, the fans were just like, Gunther, Gunther. I said, there's no way I'm getting in the ring after we're all sitting here the whole match, you know, going off and I'm listening to them. And now I'm going to go up there and say, Gunther, they're going to be like, girl. <laughs> You know, so it really is so yeah. much of matching the energy, you know, when you're at the live shows and everybody, you're just matching, matching the vibe. And luckily yeah. it's worked and it's fit. And I, and I, I would only ever do what I feel that, per, that superstar, like what they make me feel is what I have been trying to do. So, and I can't believe everybody likes it. I'm so happy. <laughs> so when you're coming up with them and let's call them arrangements, right. For lack of a better term, and you're doing a group like Imperium where each guy 
gets enunciated differently according to their nationality. Or Chelsea Green, where you well, you put a little stank on that one, right? Or the gra- <laughs> the gravitas that you give for the bloodline in Roman Reigns. Are you at all or ever working with the superstars to kind of conceptualize them individually? Or is it you just going out there, maybe trying a couple things at live events, seeing how they hit and feeling it and going with it? It really, there are definitely times where I'll see someone and I'll be like, hey, I'm thinking, bomb, 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 bomb. What you thinking? And they're like, oh, I like that. Or, you know, like I remember Solo. I asked Solo because I used to, you know, when we were doing 205 and stuff and when we were at the PC, I would go solo and I would hold it. And then I was like, I don't know if that's right. And I, and I was like, what do you think? Like, what do you think about solo? You know? And he said, I like that. I like that. And I was like, okay, cool. So there are times where I ask, but then there's also times where I just do it. Like Chelsea Green, I just did it. Like I just couldn't help myself. Like I just couldn't help myself. And they liked it and, and she liked it. And I was like, great. So, uh, yeah, it depends. It, it depends. But the, the, um, the Imperium, you know, that was all, <clears throat> that was all like Ludwig Kaiser came out one time. That was it. He came out and we were all like, we were waiting all day to kind of hear what was going to happen with him. Mm-hmm. The first, the first time he ever was going to come on SmackDown, we didn't really know what he was going to say, what was going to happen. So I introduced him. I was in the ring and I didn't really go in the ring that much. I was still pretty new. And I just said, Ludwig Kaiser, because we didn't know. Right. We're like, Ludwig Kaiser. Okay. Ludwig Kaiser. And then it's just, that was it. Now, every time I see him, I'm like, what's this dude all about? I don't know. He's Ludwig Kaiser. <laughs> So have any superstars pulled you aside and said, hey, you know, I hear what you're doing for Chelsea. I hear what you're doing for Roman. How about I get a little bit of that? Get a little bit of sauce. Like sometimes sauce. I, yeah. I'll i say to people, though, I'll be like, I'm going to put stank on you today or I'm going to, you know, I'm going to give you something today. And they're like, oh, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, I know that for WrestleMania, Drew, I saw Drew McIntyre in the gym prior to WrestleMania. And he was like, he was like, Sam, Sam, you know, he's like, I really want a WrestleMania Drew McIntyre, you know, like really give it to me like a Drew McIntyre, McIntyre. And I was like, you want that? And he was like, (laughs) yeah, yeah. And I was like, all right. I said, I got you. I'm I'm going to, I'm going to give it to you. So, uh, and I love that because it's about them. And I, and I'm, I love that. So if anybody ever, even if they see this, you ever want a little something, something, let me know. Well, the Chelsea one stuck out to me just because like, you know, you listen to the ring announcing and sometimes we kind of see you some, most of the time we don't. And you are, okay, Chelsea's coming to the ring. They'll say Chelsea Green. Then all of a sudden I hear, huh, that was a little stanky. And then two weeks later, she comes out again. I'm like, okay, she's doing something special with Chelsea now. You get, yeah. It takes two times to like figure out, was that by how accident? How can I go back that? now? You can't. You no, know, how can I go back at this point? You know, she's, she's Chelsea Green. And I'm sure that they're, you know, who knows? You know how it is. Who knows what the future holds? Right. But she's Chelsea Green. That's just who she is. <laughs> and I, honestly, she's a breath of fresh air too. And I yeah. just since since she's been, I mean, she. I'm not saying I agree with all of her viewpoints, but I am entertained <laughs> thoroughly by her. Absolutely, I think that's a very uh, universal uh, take on what Chelsea's done so far uh, in right. WWE. So I saw a fan recently post a video. You retweeted it of. You, had, you were having fun at a live event or maybe during a Raw commercial break singing the Degeneration X chorus. And yeah. other than that, when you're at live events or these TV tapings and everything, 
Do you get any opportunity to sing or not? I like throwing little things in here and there. Like we have different cams like that we do where we, we put the camera, you know, on the crowd and people dance, people throw up the rock, you know, people eyebrow, they show off their signs. And sometimes there's some music in the background and I'll, I'll do a little something. The DX thing was like, it, it grew into that. Like it started off that I was like, how, you know, everything is the same. How can I not? Right. I really just feel like, and I, hopefully the more people get to know me and they see like, if you were in my position, really, you do the same. How thing, yeah. could you not? Yeah. Like you just, if you have a chance, you watch it your whole life and you think, man, if I was there, I'd do this. If I was there, I'd, I'd say it like this. I'd tell somebody like this. And in this situation, I'm, I'm there. And I'm like, they're playing the DX. They're asking people to chop it out. You know, I'm going to sing it. Right. So it started off just a little bit here and there. And then like, you know, some of the guys would be like, oh, that was cool. That sounded good. And then eventually I just kind of started singing the entire thing. That's so, really cool. But I'm open to singing always. That's what I do. So, you so what you're saying is WWE, you want me to sing at a live event? I'll do it. Just tell me it's okay. You want me to bust out that flash funk? I okay. will okay. go hard for you. All right. What's, what's your top two or three entrance themes that you would like to sing? Old school, current, whatever. That I would like to sing? Or, or that just that you like, that you listen to, whether you're working out or bring you back to childhood, whatever the case. What are, when you think WWE entrance themes and the ones that hit for you, what are the top couple? So number one for me is like a, is kind of a toss up between Undertaker Dark Side version mm-hmm. two or three. Okay. There's a little bit of a tempo difference there and some guitar differences, but I love, I love the Undertaker's, all of his themes through the mm-hmm. years. I love the Undertaker's. Number two for me is, bad guy razor ramon i can only imagine how funky the percussionists are getting on that right. and i just feel like you hear that car like that to me i don't know why i just always feel very cool when i listen to that and then i love flash funk because we're getting vocals we're getting right. real you know girl group vocals which is just music that i really enjoy no, that makes sense. Before we had a theme on this podcast, we use Razor Ramon's theme because that is my favorite. I think it's number one all time. Uh, it's it's when, so good. When you, when you hear the, the tires screech, you're like, shit is about to go down. And the guy that's going to walk out is the coolest dude that you're going to see. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yep. And, and honestly, it only gets better with time when I watch and I go back and I'm watching these vignettes and these promos that he was cutting. I'm like, dang, because I was I was a kid and I still right. thought it was dope. And now as an adult, I'm like, it does not get cooler. Yeah, it doesn't. No offense to all the other cool people, but it doesn't. They said oozing machismo. They were right. OK, that's exactly it. No question it. about it. Uh, now, yeah. I'd, a- I'd ask you about your whole engagement story with Trevor, but Ricochet recently told it in detail. So I'm not going to go into the whole thing. Congratulations, of course, on having because it happened at the same day. Um, what I thought was hysterical was how he explained that he did this whole thing. You guys are in Las Vegas and your daughter just no sold the entire thing and only cared yeah. about having dinner first. So you yeah. kind of gave it away earlier. What my question was, you said she really likes Bianca Belair. Is Ricochet anywhere near her favorite wrestler? Yes. Okay. He loves, loves Ricochet and Ricochet is a close second to Bianca Belair. 
Okay, fair enough. Sometimes she says Ricochet is first. Sometimes she does. But I feel like that's sympathy. You know what I'm saying? Because being nice. Yeah, she understands. Yeah. I mean, I just see she she does love Ricochet, though. Like she absolutely loves Ricochet. She she cries when, you know, when something happens that, you know, she gets very worried and concerned. Mm -hmm. um, And she's very happy and relieved when things go well for him. That's cool. So, So, yeah, she, she loves him. That's awesome. So WWE in the last couple of years has been more relaxed, I guess, on letting relationships kind of permeate and shine through TV. And we got a glimpse of that on Valentine's Day where you guys did the really funny and cute, like mistletoe type of spot with Braun Strowman and Ricochet. Now, ring announcers getting involved on screen, and you know this as a WWE super fan, it's definitely happened before, but it's not always a common occurrence. So have there been any pitches with you being part of an angle or if not, is that something that you're open to going forward? Well, you know, if the action happens to come over near me and I get involved, I can't predict the future of what could happen, you know, when I'm out there. Uh, I didn't know that Shanky was going to come over and bust a move with me. He just <laughs> did. And I said, let me not be rude, you know. Of course. And uh, and even with that, I mean, Braun's calling me and he's like, kiss him. And I'm like, well, what am I supposed to do? You know, I got to kiss the guy. He needs me and the mistletoe and all that. So, and it works. you know, I'll, so, yeah. I'll do this. I know what I'm there for. I'm there to, to, to introduce these superstars. And I, and I always do what I'm supposed to do professionally. And I would hope that I wouldn't have to get involved. Let's right. just say that. Let's hope yeah. for, for everybody else. Let's hope. Right. We don't want to see that side of you. We like you Samantha Irvin on the mic having know. fun. We don't want to see what happens if you test her. I feel you. That's it. Let's see, you understand what I'm trying to I say. I get it. Well, now, hey, after, you know, 30 minutes of talking to you, I get it. I understand. <laughs> it's worth making sense. So, look, Samantha, I've kept you for so long, and you've been so gracious and generous with your time. I really appreciate it. Let me get you out of here on this. I've always wondered about the Abbey Road tattoo on your arm. Is that just being a Beatles fan, so you decided to get it, or is there any greater significance to it? There is a huge significance of the fact that I inherited my love for the Beatles from my grandfather, who was so obsessed, but he did not approve of tattoos. So it's kind of, you know, when I told him I was going to get a tattoo, he said, what are you going to spell out the Beatles on your toes? And I was like, you're a hater. But anyway, I love the Beatles so, so much. It is just a part of me. It's like lullabies. It's the basics of everything that I know musically. They've helped me through tremendously hard times in my life. I got this tattoo um, right before I got sober. So it was just a time where I I just thought to myself so many times, this music, specifically Abbey Road, has Mm -hmm. like just kept me centered and I've said saved my life, not to be dramatic, but I have said to people, the Beatles have saved my life a few different times. So, uh, yeah, that's basically it. I'm, I'm so proud to have it. And I always stand by the Beatles. So thank you for asking about that too. And, and of course my mother then passed it down to me. So the Beatles, no questions asked for me. They're the blueprint. Well, congratulations on your sobriety. And if there was a reason to get a tattoo, Sounds like a pretty damn good one, I would say. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. Of course. Well, look, thanks once again to WWE ring announcer Samantha Irvin for joining the show. Don't forget to catch her every Monday night on Raw, 8 p.m. Eastern on USA Network, as well as at WWE Money in the Bank on Saturday, July 1st, airing live on Peacock. I really appreciate all your time today. I wish you the best this weekend and going forward with everything. Thank you so much. Seriously, thank you.
Man, what a delight it was speaking with Samantha. Thanks, of course, to WWE for setting up the interview, providing the access, and thanks to her for taking the time out of her busy schedule to join us. She has such a unique, interesting story. As I mentioned, so many of WWE's on-air and behind-the-scenes folks who aren't in-ring talent, they don't necessarily enter the industry as fans. Many of them become fans. But it was so touching to hear how much it means to Samantha. Having been a WWE super fan growing up, you can tell she clearly still is one now. She works for the company, and she continues to find that link and use that as a link with her family. Now, she's had her trials and tribulations in life, like all of us, but she seems to be in an incredible spot, both personally and professionally right now, and that is undoubtedly coming through in what we as viewers get to see and hear on TV. And Samantha, she was so generous with her time that, look, we probably could have spoken for another 20, 30 minutes, and I do wish I had asked her a little bit more about her fandom growing up, her favorite wrestlers, matches, events, attending events, things like that. But hopefully this was just the first conversation of many that we'll have with her in the future. It'd be fantastic to have her back on the show. And in case she's listening, I was serious about the co-hosting gig. I will kick Chris Vanini right off this show without a second thought. Okay, I'm kidding about that, Chris. You're not going anywhere. You're fantastic. But the point is, Samantha, the door is open. You want to join us at any time. So I appreciate all of you who have joined us for the first time to listen to our sit-down interview with Samantha Irvin. And I hope you subscribe to the show, however you are listening to us right now, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. We're on every major platform and a bunch of minor ones as well. Again, we have WWE episodes every Tuesday, NXT and AEW generally on Thursday. We try to do as many of these interviews as we can. And we also produce both ultimate previews and instant reactions before and after premium live events and pay-per-views. It's a one-stop shop right here at the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast, and we hope you join us going forward. On the way out, a couple reminders first. We will be back on Thursday with our AEW Forbidden Door Ultimate Preview, and then Sunday, as soon as that show goes off the air, we will have your AEW Forbidden Door Instant Reaction. Of course, next Tuesday, when it comes to WWE, we'll be back with our WWE Money in the Bank Ultimate Preview, so do not miss any of those. Also, please remember, it's all about DeFi. So if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or even if you're not and you have those apps, please leave us a five-star rating on Apple. Also leave a five-star written review on Spotify. You can comment on individual episodes. We will read those reviews and comments live here on the show as long as you leave five stars along with them. So please do not forget to go and do that. Also, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news analysis highlights, all that great stuff. And please, one more time, remember. I happen to love the number five. Become an official Getting Overhead. Visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. For only $5 a month, you can support the show financially, but you also get bonus audio, news posts, and much more. Again, all over at buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Thanks once again to WWE ring announcer Samantha Irvin for joining us. Thanks again to WWE for setting that up. I hope you all enjoyed today's show. We will be back Thursday, of course, Sunday, and then again next Tuesday for the WWE show. But at this point, it is time for the Silver King to sign off and leave you with three final words. Bye for now.